Well, good day and welcome to another episode here of the Disaster Podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Davis, the Podmedic, and we are back with another episode here as we roll into Valentine's Day weekend. So, um, you know... uh, Nice to have our family here, as we uh, call ourselves uh, on the Disaster Podcast. And that family starts off with Sam Bradley. Hey, Sam. Hey, Jamie. I think our meteorologists are off doing something Valentine-ish because they're they're not here tonight. So we we won't have any weather. But you know, maybe that's a good sign that nothing terrible is in the offing. There's not a lot going on. I think it's pretty quiet week, so we'll take it. Yeah. I'm there. So we have Dr. Joe with us. Hi, Dr. Joe. How are you tonight? He's he's mobile, so it may get a little bit noisy there, but he's with us nonetheless. And he wants to talk about smoke inhalation injuries. And there's a lot of questions we could pose on that. So um, it's hard to even know where to start. So just define what that means, Joe. Well, uh, let me start one step before that. So part of the reason I, uh, I, I thought this might be a good topic for tonight is uh, winter weather. People have, uh, uh, you know, space heaters going, fireplaces going, uh, and uh, house fires are much more common. And uh, it, certainly in my services, we've been seeing uh, a fair amount of uh, pretty significant house fires with smoke inhalation and inhalation injuries. So. Uh, I thought it was kind of a timely topic. Um, basically, it's pretty broadly uh, defined as any sort of um, injury that occurs due to the inhalation of uh, gases of some sort. So, you know, you really can break this down into several different uh, areas. So you can get thermal injury from inhaling uh, super hot gases or steam. You can get um, smoke based injury where you actually inhale um, uh, stuff that's burned or burning and uh, cause, you know, not only direct burns, but all the particulate uh, injury that comes with all the stuff that's in smoke. Uh, and, and that gets in contact with your airway and can, you know, burn, cause chemical burn, cause thermal burn, uh, and cause big inflammatory response. So, uh, there's those aspects. Then you also can inhale various other toxic gases, uh, particularly things like, um, um, cyanide and that sort of stuff based in fires. Uh, and, you know, you can absorb that through the uh, inhalation uh, of those gases as well. So there's a lot of different aspects to it. And I think it's important that we we think about the, all of those and that uh, we, we, in many cases, need to be pretty aggressive in our treatment on those patients. So basically, it's anything you inhale that you're not supposed to. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's basically it. But the injuries other come than in other than oxygen. Yeah. Well, and that's something I want to really focus in on. Um, what about asphyxiants? Where do we find situations where that may be the case? So asphyxiants basically work by replacing the oxygen in the air with whatever the asphyxiant is, so that. Uh, you know, you, you, there's no oxygen for you to uh, uh, pull in. 
Uh, and, you know, we can see those in all kinds of different chemical releases, uh, certainly hazmat situations, et cetera. A lot of, uh, a lot of those type uh, injuries occur in hazmat situations where there's a, a, a release of uh, some sort of asphyxiant type gas. So what are those kinds of gases? I know what is it? cyanide's one of them, right? Uh, yeah, so cyanide works by, you know, literally blocking the, uh, the ability of uh, uh, blood to, to lock onto oxygen, and uh, uh, that, that results in literally a, a cellular asphyxia. But other gases, uh, other asphyxian-type gases, can work by uh, simply blocking uh, or displacing oxygen uh, from the air so that, you know, the, the cell itself is working normally. There's just no oxygen to bind to the cell. So the result is the same. You get no oxygen into the cell. And, of course, the cell doesn't survive very long like that. What about irritant compounds? What are we talking about there? Oh, lots and lots of those. Uh, and, and most all kinds of inhalational injuries have some sort of irritant type um, uh, association there, right? So smoke and uh, uh, things like that are obviously irritating to the airway uh, just because of the particulate matter that they contain. But there are also a number of uh, different kinds of gases that are extremely irritating to uh, lung and lung tissue and mucous membranes in general. So, you know, I mean, you can get sort of crazy, like things like mustard gas and uh, stuff like that, that, you know, are really blistering agents. But anything that comes in contact with uh, moisture uh, can result in uh, the formation of chemical compounds that result in a chemical and or thermal burn, right? Many of those uh, um, chemicals as they are produced due to the chemical reaction that's ongoing are exothermic, meaning they put out lots of heat. So you literally can get burned uh, both thermally and chemically from uh, some of those kind of gases. Ouch. Uh, well, real quickly, you know, we chatted a little bit today. When you're talking about homes, and a lot of people don't realize a lot of the components of your couch and your furniture and your drapes and other things in your home, when they burn, they they can send off toxic chemicals without uh, you even realizing it, right? That that's a hundred percent correct. So certainly uh, polyester type fibers, um, you know, plastics and that sort of stuff. Uh, frequently, when they burn, they actually produce lots of toxic chemicals. But one of the ones we worried about most uh, most frequently is uh, cyanide. Um, that's a very common uh, uh, way to get cyanide poisoning. So. You know, I think from a, a house fire standpoint, if you pull a, a, a patient out of a, uh, out of a house fire who's in severe respiratory distress or subsequently uh, goes into a respiratory distress, you know, you obviously need to think about the, 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 the typical inhalational injuries from superheated air and, uh, you know, flames and soot and everything else. But um, it, it's pretty uh, common in many EMS services to uh, also give those patients um, cyanocobalamin to try to uh, interact with the possible cyanide there and reverse their uh, potential cyanide poisoning. Well, it's good to know there's something they can do about it. 
Um, as opposed to a wildland fire situation where you might be in a situation where you have natural, you know, wood and other things burning. Is that any better or worse? I think probably just different. Uh, you know, you're, you're much less likely in a wildland fire to have um, hazardous chemicals involved uh, if it's truly wilderness area. Uh, but at the same time, those fires can be quite intense. Uh, you can get, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, ash and smoke and, you know, all the stuff that's associated with that, uh, as well as, um, um, you know, stirring up whatever uh, allergens and stuff are out there. So those uh, in inhalation of that um, kind of stuff can, can certainly lead to not only a significant inflammatory response, but in some people even an allergic response. So, uh, you know, you're you already got some airway injury, and then on top of that, you add bronchospasm and things like that from uh, an exacerbation of an underlying asthmatic condition, for example. Oh, not good. Jamie, thoughts? I just, you know, I just know that we, you know, we we see these things this time of year, as Joe said, and it's something that we need to revisit um, frequently, and it, it's it's. I guess daunting to think about all the different types of situations and chemical combinations that you could potentially run into. I mean, obviously you mentioned cyanide, Joe, but I mean, I'm sure it's, it's a bit of a, a detective game when you get a patient exhibiting various symptoms from related to a smoke inhalation injury uh, show up in the ER. I mean, I guess you, you start running some tests and try to narrow down what the specific causes are, or do you take a more general approach? Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, the, the you know, the primary uh, concerns you have are, is the airway itself actually damaged? And by that, I mean, is it inflamed, burned, um, uh, you know, has chemical processes going on that are causing big inflammatory responses. So, you know, in patients that have um, uh, certainly signs and symptoms of smoke inhalation, and that's everything from uh, respiratory distress to, you know, change in mental status because they're hypoxic, uh, and then, you know, soot in their mouth, facial burns, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. You, you need to look at the airway on those patients. Uh, and uh, see what's going on in there. And, and certainly if you're seeing evidence that the airway itself has been burned, whether that's chemically or thermally, then uh, you need to uh, secure that airway uh, because the swelling is going to be substantial and uh, rapid in onset. And so it's important to get that airway secured right away. Uh, once you're sure you've got that taken care of, then it's um, things like pulmonary toilet and, you know, looking to see is the burn um, sort of in the proximal airways, has it gone all the way down to the alveolar level and actually, you know, damaged lung tissue itself. Uh, so, you know, that, that plays into ventilator management and uh, uh, approaches like that to, to try to minimize the damage there. And then also looking at um, other other confounding factors. So, you know, back to cyanide again, uh, doing a co-oximetry on those patients to see if they uh, have uh, evidence of carboxyhemoglobin and, you know, do they, do they need hyperbaric oxygen? Do they need cyano kits? Do they need any of those things to, uh, 
um, you know, play into um, uh, whatever other disease process may be going on as part of that inhalational injury. Yeah, I want to talk more about that, uh, you know, management piece. But um, do these people recover if they they end up on a vent? Yeah, uh, you know, the, the injuries vary quite a bit. Um, generally, the, the, the more burn-type injuries, um, if you can secure the airway, uh, they respond fairly well to, you know, treatment and time. Uh, to uh, uh, allow the burn to begin to heal and the inflammatory response to go down. You know, for, for a lot of those people, they they succumb to massive swelling of the airway and then they just simply lose their airway. So that's why it's important to intervene on those patients early and, and take care of that airway so that uh, they don't end up so swollen that you can't get them intubated later on. So Joe Homeowner... They have uh, some curtains catch fire, and they put it out. What kind of symptoms should these people be concerned with, such that they should call nine one one? Well, I, you know, I think that, that's a tough question to answer because there's a lot at work here. Um, in, in general, the you know these are fairly tend to be fairly uh, significant fires. So, uh, apart from concerns over uh, you know, smoke damage to your house and making sure you've got everything out. Um, you know, the concern over how much of a potentially harmful chemical release has there been. Uh, and, you know, if it's something like cyanide, you're going to go down pretty quickly with with very short uh, symptom times before you're in, you know, asphyxiated in cardiac arrest. Uh but, you know, things like suddenly beginning to feel short of breath and lightheaded and, uh, you know, uh, uh, perhaps a throbbing headache if there's carbon monoxide there, things like that um, would signal that, you know, something's going on. I need to get out of this enclosed space and get some, get some fresh air and remove myself from this environment as quickly as I can and, and potentially go seek additional care, if you, you know, if those symptoms don't resolve very quickly. Yeah, cardiac arrest would be a pretty significant system uh, symptom. Uh, <laughs> I saw another list that talked about hoarse voice, obvious shortness of breath, sure. yeah. uh, drawn out coughing spells, mental confusion. So a lot of that's what you sure. touched on. Another fact I said, pulmonary complications following burns and inhalation injury are responsible for up to 77% of deaths. But that is attributing them to carbon monoxide poisoning. What about that? Well, certainly carbon monoxide poisoning uh, it, it can easily be fatal, uh, and you've got to go looking for it. Uh, it's it's not uncommon, whether it's intentional from uh, you know a suicide attempt, for example, or simply uh, uh, coincidental to uh, uh, becoming unconscious in a house fire and, you know, breathing in lots of carbon monoxide. So uh, identifying those patients fairly, fairly quickly, uh, uh, 100% oxygen is the treatment there. And in many cases, if they are substantially, um, if their levels are substantially high, then you need to move forward with things like hyperbaric oxygen uh, and treatments like that to get that uh, carbon monoxide displaced from the hemoglobin so it can be replaced with oxygen. Yeah, so we're talking about system toxicity, basically. But the yes. problem, problem with carbon monoxide, as we know, it's colorless and odorless, and it has that affinity for hemoglobin, which is much higher than 
vat of oxygen. So a lot of people may not realize right away that they're being affected by it. But again, as you were saying, this time of year, people are, you know, have their windows shut and their doors shut and, and the fireplace going and whatever else. So Jamie, you might know this. Um, I don't have a sense of how many people actually have carbon monoxide detectors. I don't know. So a lot, a lot of how the, much of those, a yeah, lot of the how smoke much of detectors those are, are, are combination now. A lot of the, the the midline models, at least, are um, and above are are a combination smoke detector, carbon monoxide detectors. Um, I think depending on the code enforcement with building code where you are. Um, if you have a, a, a furnace that is burning something to generate heat, um, they're going to require a smoke detector at least on the level where the furnace is, if not throughout the house and, and all the, on all the levels. In other words, have those dual detectors. Um, but that's you know that depends on the building code and what's required in structures. Um, you know, a lot of places have smoke detector requirements, but don't have carbon monoxide detector requirements associated with that as well. So it's something to be aware of where you are. Um, You know, my feeling is um, if you have a combustion-based heating system, it's probably a good idea to consider having a um, carbon monoxide detector um, in your home um, on at least one on each level. And it's odd. It it would seem... the other way around because you can see smoke but you can't detect carbon monoxide right joe yeah that's that's correct uh but you know i think jamie's got a really good point and certainly again this time of year you know in my area for example we've had uh significant portions of our community without power for several days now and people running generators and of course they uh, try to bring the generator, you know, inside the garage so that it doesn't get stolen and all that sort of stuff. And they end up with carbon monoxide poisoning from uh, the internal combustion engine running in the generator. Uh, so, you know, it's not an uncommon situation here at all. Uh, Jamie is definitely uh, on, on point in regards to the uh, carbon monoxide detectors. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing, though, with, you know, that's that's going to be related to building codes. So newer buildings, probably not an issue, but certainly older homes that are much more likely to be using, um, uh, you know, stand-up heaters and uh, sort of open flame heaters as opposed to some newer furnaces and that kind of stuff are, are much less likely to have carbon monoxide detectors. Yeah, really interesting. What about children? What are the kind of things we see? Uh, how are they affected by it? Uh, I know airway management is an issue because it's so much smaller. Um, they tend to be tachypnic when they have and then have that increased work of breathing, which is a clue. So talk to us about that. Well, you, you've covered it nicely. That, that definitely is uh, a part of all of that. Uh, and you know, I think the issue that we often see is that, as you mentioned, their airways are much smaller diameter, so it takes much less swelling before they uh, are in trouble, and uh, all the more reason to be uh, aggressive and intervene early on those patients. And then you mentioned, you know, people that have existing respiratory issues, so that needs to be taken into consideration. But what about older adults in general? 
I, I don't know that there's anything particular about about older adults. Uh, it, it is often the the comorbidities that may come along with age that you know are going to make you at higher risk for problems. So patients that have uh, you know, COPD, longstanding lung issues, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, if you think about many of those folks that are, uh, have severe enough lung disease that require them to be on home oxygen, and now you're talking about things burning in that environment where oxygen is, you know, being pumped into the space, uh, that just makes those fires that much potentially, uh, that much more potentially deadly, rapid spreading and, uh, you know, much more severe. Oh, good point. I hadn't thought about that. Jamie? Uh, Joe, I'm curious, are there any delayed effect um, issues with inhalation injuries um, that might cause someone to think they're okay and develop a problem hours or, you know, a day later um, related to maybe pulmonary edema or, or some kind of um, swelling in the airways? You touched on it uh, pretty well there, Jamie. You know, it, it's not terribly common, but uh, there certainly have been uh, cases of delayed responses, uh, and so that could be everything from uh, the the initial uh, thermal burn was, you know, not appreciated to be as deep into the respiratory tree as uh, originally thought, or there's some... Um, a chemical process that's sort of slowly uh, continuing. Um, and then uh, over time, you get that significant inflammatory response that often follows that, which, of course, is on top of everything else that you've got. So, you know, that inflammatory response may take hours uh, to to fully uh, mature. And, uh, of course, as it does so, the, you know, airway mucus production goes way up and the lining of the uh, uh, bronchioles gets uh, thicker and thicker and therefore, you know, smaller and smaller and you get ever increasing respiratory distress. So it's certainly not un, uh, not unreasonable to have uh, delayed problems related to inhalational injuries. And, and what about on, you know, I think that was Jamie was touching on problems that will exist forever or, or become issues Maybe they don't have COPD, but something like that could occur later on because of this injury or exacerbate it. Uh, absolutely, you know that you can certainly have uh, problems that are associated uh, with, um, you know, burns that occur uh, in the airway and and the, you know, persistent scarring, et cetera, that that is left with that, and and particularly in injuries where the inhalational injuries get very deep into the lung and the alveolar are infected and that kind of stuff. Um, that can cause permanent damage to both of those and result in, um, uh, you know, your, your inability to recover from that. So you mentioned this in part, but, you know, when the, when the providers get there on scene, what's the difference between them giving O2 by mask versus having to consider intubation? Well, I think that's part of the assessment piece. You know, patients uh, certainly are going to benefit from uh, oxygen therapy. As a matter of fact, usually the recommendation is, is to use humidified oxygen to try to provide some additional moisture in there and, and um, you know, help reduce the, the, the thermal and or chemical injury that's going on. 
Uh, and so you want to start with uh, aggressive oxygen therapy. But, you know, if you're seeing signs of uh, soot in the airway and, and pre-significant respiratory distress, et cetera, then you need to have a pretty low threshold for taking, you know, definitive control of that airway. Yeah, like you said, it's going to swell and get worse. It can pretty much depend yeah, on it that. Yeah, then you've lost your opportunity to intervene. Right. Um, so they get to the ER, and one of the things they do is bronchoscopy. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so that's sort of the the ultimate look at the bronchial kind of thing, right? Uh, the 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 plan there is to uh, you can only see so far in using you know laryngoscopy or video laryngoscopy, et cetera. You know, only the upper airway, epiglottis, and that that sort of stuff. So you want to look at the trachea. You want to look down into the uh, bronchial tree as far as you can. You want to clean out um, uh, any particulate matter that's down in there that is likely to be causing continued inflammation and potential injury. You want to wash that that tissue out of there. You want to assess for uh, both thermal signs of thermal and chemical burns and other injuries that may be there uh, and and sort of establish a baseline. Uh, you know, many folks are going to, with significant inhalational injury, are going to get bronched several times as uh, the uh, the ongoing uh, treatment and evaluation of the severity of their burn. That doesn't sound like fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. But the thing I am most intrigued with is hyperbaric oxygen, and I, I don't know what the original uses for it were. I know when I was doing scuba diving and all of that, you know, we, we talked about it in that context, but how does it help this patient? Is it does it, where carbon monoxide goes in and kind of takes over, uh, does this reverse that process? Uh, yes, sort of reverse in quotes. So really the, the what hyperbaric oxygen is doing is hyperbaric just means uh, uh, elevated pressures from atmospheric. So uh, as a, a really basic example from my feeble brain, if there are a thousand molecules of oxygen in a, uh, you know, a liter of, of air, uh, if you compress that to, you know, to the pressures of four liters uh, in the same space, now you've got 4,000 molecules of oxygen in there. And as you mentioned earlier, with the significantly higher affinity of carbon monoxide um, or, or of hemoglobin for carbon monoxide versus oxygen, um, you literally just sort of outnumber the carbon monoxide, right? If, if one carbon monoxide is uh, uh, present for every thousand molecules of oxygen and, uh, you know, you suddenly raise the oxygen level to 4,000, then, you know, you're much more likely to get oxygen to uh, jump on the hemoglobin and, and displace the carbon monoxide. So it's a matter of just increasing the concentration beyond uh, 100%, quote-unquote, normal atmospheric, you know, that so that you can get um, uh, higher concentrations. Wow. Sounds good to me. And there's nothing feeble about your brain, Dr. Joe Ollie. <laughs> so you that. know. <laughs> so, Jamie, we're winding up here, but any thoughts or questions or comments from you? 
No, I just, you know, I, I say this every time that you share these clinical topics, Joe, that it's just a really a, a great opportunity to refresh our memories. Um, you know, a lot of this stuff gets taught to us in a brief session of either our initial training or ongoing educational situations. And um, it's not something we may run into all that frequently. So it's it's always good to, to keep um, our wits about us and keep uh, our suspicions um, heightened in times when it's times a year like this um, and in situations that may indicate an inhalation injury. And um, this is a big help. Well, it's certainly that time of year where we're much more likely to see these things uh, because of the environmental factors that are involved. Right. So, uh, and, and if you don't go looking for these things, then you don't catch them. Well, and it's good coming from Joe because he not only understands the pre-hospital care aspect, but the ER aspect and beyond. So we get a bigger picture of what we're really talking about here. Right, Jamie? Absolutely. And, and Joe, you know, I just want to, you know, thank you for your continued support and with these clinical topics, with um, the way we are able to keep bringing the, the disaster podcast out to folks um, and the way that you integrate these Things into our show are exactly the same ways you bring clinical topics to life for people in training through Paragon Medical Education Group as well. Um, you know, the, the way you make it easy to understand, um, bring it to practical applications, um, and un- help us understand when we're likely to see these things are all some of the things that make the uh, educational experience that you provide through Paragon um, just that much better. Um, where can folks find out more about if they want to do a customized um, training scenario regarding specific um, environmental factors associated with this time of year? Where can they um, reach out to you to do that? Well, thanks, Jamie. We're always happy to talk with folks so that we can customize their educational experience. Uh, they can find us on the web at paragonmedicalgroup.com or uh, on Facebook at Paragon Medical Group. And uh, they can certainly reach us at the Disaster Podcast. And Sam, where can folks find you? Well, in the usual social media places under Sam Bradley or Sam Bradley 11, and most certainly on our Disaster Podcast Facebook group where we have a lot of good discussions going on and disasterpodcast.com. How about you, Jamie? Well, you can find me under the handle Podmedic in most social media locations out there, um, including TikTok even, if you're looking for me and doing stupid, stupid, strange short videos. Um, that's been my <laughs> latest um, fun thing to keep me occupied. Um, but otherwise, um, definitely at disasterpodcast.com. Remember, when you go over to disasterpodcast.com and look up an episode, there are actually links right there to subscribe. And you can subscribe no matter what your favorite mobile device is or even by email if you want. And that way you won't miss any of our upcoming episodes. So I urge you to do that. Um, Sam, I'm glad uh, Joe suggested this as a topic for us tonight. And, um, you know, it just reminds us of so many important things that – Uh, ongoing education provides for us and one of the reasons it's incumbent upon us to stay up to date with these things. Yeah, Jamie, and and it's one of those things that we fortunately don't see all that often. So, you you know, it's easy to forget some of these details. So we do appreciate it, Joe, and uh, we'll look forward to the next one. My pleasure, guys. Can't wait to talk to you again.